Confused. I am your host, Heather Evans. You may have heard that the Washington County Board of Supervisors is having a public hearing on November 9th to discuss the relocation of the two Confederate monuments that exist outside the courthouse in Abingdon, Virginia. This week, I'm joined by two guests to discuss the history of Confederate monuments in general and also research on the removal of those monuments. So first, Dr. Adam Dombey is an award-winning historian of the Civil War, Reconstruction, and the American South. Having previously worked as an assistant professor at the College of Charleston, he is now an associate professor at Auburn University. His book, The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory, which was published by the University of Virginia Press, examines the role of lies and exaggeration in the creation of lost cause narratives of the war, as well as their connections to white supremacy. Andrea Benjamin is an associate professor in the Clara Lupert Department of African and African American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Her research interests include race and politics, local elections and voting behavior, and public opinion. Her first book, Racial Coalition Building in Local Elections, Elite Cues and Cross-Ethnic Voting, explores the potential for Black and Latino coalitions, and it was published by Cambridge University Press. So thanks to both of you for joining the program today. Okay, Adam, I want to jump right in with the history of Confederate monuments in our nation Here in this part of southwestern Virginia, we are set to remove and possibly relocate the two monuments that exist outside our courthouse. Back last summer, I began a petition about the relocation of those monuments, and I was joined by some great citizens in the town who all had a passion for relocating that symbol, given that it was directly outside our courthouse and didn't really speak to our court system being equal justice for all. Um, A few different historians were also with me in this process and began digging in to kind of find the history of the monuments, find out when they were built, where they were located, what the dedication ceremonies were like, and all of that. And people were surprised to find out they weren't directly built right after the war. So what can you tell us about the general history of Confederate monuments in our nation? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, you know, 1866, um, white Southerners who had fought for the Confederacy didn't have a lot to celebrate. Um, and so putting up a monument in front of the courthouse to celebrate the Confederacy didn't really make much sense at the time. Um, there were some monuments put up in those, those first decades after the war in cemeteries, specifically to memorialize the dead. Um, you know, you had had um, somewhere between 600 and 700,000 killed in this war in, on both sides. Um, and uh, so there was a lot more, but there wasn't a, a sort of movement to put them in front of courthouses until later. What you see is once Reconstruction ends, this period where African-Americans are enfranchised and have rights and are part of our functioning democracy, um, white Southerners using a mixture of violence and uh, the threat of violence, and cheating and um, appeals to white supremacy um, ultimate, and then through legal means, through passing laws that, uh, like literacy exams, disenfranchise the African American community. Once that happens, once you have African Americans disenfranchised, in other words, a major element, a major result of the war 
right? Freedom for African-Americans and rights for African-Americans. Once that's been overturned, then only then do you see the monuments start are being erected in front of a courthouse because courthouses are places where you're making a very political statement. You're saying this is who controls this area, right? Who controls the courts is of great importance uh, in the early 20th century. Um, and so really you see the biggest peak of monument building really in the first couple decades of the 20th century, sometimes in the 1890s, but really the 1900, we'll say to 1920, roughly, it depends on the state is always slightly differently. It depends, you know, local situation. Um, and that's when you see these monuments start going up really in front of courthouses. And, and Karen Cox has, has recently come out with a book. She's a professor at University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and has recently come out of the book looking at the way that frequently monuments are keep getting put up in years to come during times of, of sort of rush, racial strife. And so it's very much connected to opposing the civil rights movement. You see monuments go up. And so there's some connections there. And even at the time when these monuments were put up, they were very explicit on what they were meant to celebrate. During the dedication speeches, you see individuals say things like these are, these monuments are celebrating that we overturned reconstruction. That is a a frequently mentioned aspect. And so, and they will frequently say even things like this monument celebrates the success of white supremacy, right? So the people who are putting these monuments up had no question that these monuments were tied to white supremacy. They very much believe they were tied to white supremacy. Um, and there's a reason they were putting up monuments that were only to white men. They're not putting up monuments to African-Americans who fought for the U U.S. Army. There were no black Confederates. So there's monuments are inherently towards white men. And so these monuments have long been tied uh, to white supremacy, and it's no surprise that we've seen in Virginia, especially most notably in Charlottesville, um, a continuation of how these, these monuments draw white supremacists to them. Yeah. Now, the, one of the monuments that exists outside the courthouse, it um, was erected in um, 1907. And so this is, you know, 40 years after the war is over. And if you look back at the, the clippings from the time period when the dedication was happening, there was also some quotes about it really being dedicated to the quote unquote lost cause. So can you tell us a little bit about like for the for those listeners who may not know what that means, what mm -hmm. is the lost cause? Yeah, the lost cause is a narrative of history of the past that is frankly ahistorical. It's not accurate. Um, that was created after the war. It was meant to, it was supposed to help, it was a narrative that helped deal with loss specifically. And the narrative has sort of central elements that you'll see repeated again and again. For example, you'll hear repeated statements like, the war had nothing to do with slavery. Now, let me be very clear. The war had everything to do with slavery. You look at the Articles of Secession of South Carolina and Mississippi and all the states as they secede, and they say very quite clearly the reason they want to leave the Union is one specific set of rights. But if you fought a war for slavery, come 1866, that means you're a loser. If, on the other hand, you fought a war for, say, states' rights, come 1890, when states' rights are being used to resist efforts by the federal government to maintain civil rights for African Americans, right? They are now a key tool for oppression, and state rights still exist. Well, state rights still exist, and you fought for states' rights, you're not a loser anymore. And so you'll actually see at some of these speeches, people say the lost cause wasn't even lost, uh, even though it very clearly was. Um, you know, there's one speech where they claim that 
at uh, Appomattox, it was a compromise, which would have surely surprised Robert E. Lee, um, who was pretty sure that he'd surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant um, at Appomattox. Um, and so there are other elements as well. For instance, it, it presents slavery as not being as horrendous as it actually was. And let me be very clear, slavery was a terrible institution premised on extracting labor through the use of violence and the threat of violence. Uh, abuse was rampant during it. Violence was rampant during it. There's nothing pretty about slavery, but this would present it as slavery as not being bad or not that bad or even benevolent. Similarly, um, another element of this sort of narrative was that the Confederate soldier was the most amazing soldier who ever fought um, and only lost due to overwhelming numbers. And so these are sort of key crucial elements of this of this this narrative of history. And a, a last element I'd, I'd point to, I mean, there's other elements as well I could, but a key element I'd point to is remembering Reconstruction as a time of corruption and misrule, and that overturning Reconstruction helped make the South restored to order. Um, and it sort of ignores the fact that what the end of Reconstruction really brought in was the disenfranchisement of African-Americans. And so it justified, in many ways, this narrative not only dealt with loss, but justified the reassertion of white supremacy. Because if slavery wasn't so bad and Reconstruction was bad, then overturning Reconstruction and moving things back towards slavery is a positive thing. Um, and so it, it justified disenfranchisement of African-Americans um, with this narrative. And let me be very clear, this narrative is full of falsehoods, right? And that's the key element. And it's still taught today, because in large part due to uh, efforts to instill it in the education system, as well as in monuments. Yeah. So what would you say to people who say that monuments teach us history? I mean, do they, what, what do they actually teach us? No, that's a really good question. And the truth of the matter is monuments tell us more about the time they're erected than they do about the time they nominally commemorate. But even there, they don't tell us that much frequently. Um, frequently, the inscriptions are, are false. What they really tell us is who we should look up to. Um, that is, and they, they are a statement of values, and they're a statement about who controls power in a region. When you have judges and juries walking into a courthouse and there is a monument that proclaims that Confederates are who you should look up, that's a problem if there's a Black defendant, right? I mean, this is it says who has power. So they really are, in many ways, an expression of power. That's why they go up in front of courthouses when they do is because those courthouses have been reclaimed, if you will, in the minds of white Southerners who don't want African-Americans participating in the body politic. Now, I, okay, I've heard people say this. I have said this. Um, I, I'm getting ready to say something that I actually said last summer, which is about Robert E. Lee. So Robert E. Lee, we often use some of his writings to say that Robert E. Lee did not want monuments built. Is that true? I mean, is that an accurate statement? So yes and no. As so often is the case with history, history is complex. So I can actually give you one of the quotes that he said. Um, so in 1869, he said it's that it was better to, quote, not to keep open the sores of war but to follow the examples of nations who endeavor to obliterate the marks of civil strife to commit to oblivion the feelings engendered, right? And there's another quote he gives in 1866. He writes, as regards the erection of such a monument, my conviction is that however grateful it would be to the feelings of the South, the attempt in the present condition of the country would have the effect of retarding instead of accelerating its accomplishment, of continuing, if not adding to the difficulties under which the Southern people labor. 
All I think that can now be done is to aid our noble and generous women in their efforts to protect the graves and mark the last resting places of those who have fallen and wait for better times. And that last bit's really important. Yes, in 1866, he was saying maybe we shouldn't put up monuments. There's a reason he didn't want to put up monuments because he thought it would undermine efforts to disenfranchise African-Americans. When he's talking about the difficulties Southern people labor, he's talking about reconstruction and the fact that the end of slavery has been brought about and they're about to start enfranchising African-Americans and letting African-Americans think. And what Lee really wanted and what Lee would testify before Congress that he wanted was to put whites back in charge. He was a firm believer in white supremacy. Uh, anyone who says otherwise has not read his own documents very clearly. In fact, he, he advocated um, before Congress removing all black Southerners uh, from Virginia and sending them elsewhere, um, which is the literal technical definition under the UN, uh, under UN, you know, international law for ethnic cleansing. Um, so he was an advocate for ethnic cleansing, um, literally. But what he really wanted to do was he didn't want to put up a monument because he thought it would upset white Northerners who were supporting Reconstruction. And he wanted to convince them to let Southern whites, when he says the Southern people, he means white Southerners should be put back in charge. And then, then we can consider it. Um, and so I think it's, um, it's true he didn't want monuments being put up at that time. But of course, he'd be dead. Uh, he dies in 1870. Right. Uh, he doesn't see the, dis the success of the disenfranchisement of black Southerners that he wanted. He doesn't see the rise of, of Jim Crow. That's the least better times um, that actually led to the subsequent erection of the Confederate monuments. So rhetorically, yes, it's a useful tool to point out that um, Lee wasn't. But if we're being honest about Lee's intent, we don't know what he would have said in 1890 when these monuments go up or 1900 or 1907 when these monuments are going up, he very well may have had a different perspective because by then whites were firmly back in control. Uh, but it's very clear that that was the priority to be in the aftermath of the Civil War was returning whites to the top of the racial hierarchy in the South. Yeah, so so technically, yes, but that's <laughs> kind of but, where we'll, that's but where the we'll reason yeah. The reason yeah. is because of his very devotion to um, white supremacy, which is, of course, what makes these monuments so problematic in the first place. Right. right. And so denying these connections to white supremacy has been a common part of the lost cause. We we're talking earlier about the lost cause. Denying Lee had any role in slavery, denying he owned, he enslaved people. This is an element of the lost cause because Lee very clearly did enslave people. He fought a war to keep them enslaved. In fact, under he inherited a large number of enslaved people um, that he was mandated by the will that he inherited them by from his father-in-law to free within five years. And he doesn't do it. He actually tries to keep from freeing them. And the court basically tells him he has to free them. Um, and so he only frees these individuals when uh, the court forces him to. So yes, he did. In fact, this is one of those classic, well, did he Robert right. e. Lee free some of his slaves? Yes, he did. He did so because he was required by law to do so under the, uh, the will that had left these enslaved people in his uh, in trust to his family. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, he very much was a believer in slavery. Um, did he say that, you know, slavery had moral evils? Yes, he did. He thought it was morally harmful to whites. That was the problem. Um, did he think he was a kind slave owner? Perhaps. Did enslaved people think he was a kind slave owner? Quite the opposite. We actually have accounts by people he enslaved, which tell us quite clearly that he was viewed as an especially cruel master. 
Um, not that there really is such a thing as a good master, but he wasn't a special because even the nicest master is still enslaving you and forcing you to labor with the threat of separating your family from you and threatening you with that you might with violence, right? So Lee was known to separate families. He was known to uh, hire people to whip the people who ran away. So he was known as an especially cruel uh, enslaver, in fact, if we look at the actual documents. If we get away from the mythology and what we're taught, we're supposed to know, and look at the letters of Lee himself and those around him, we get a very different picture. If you are just tuning in, I wanted to pause for just a moment and um, say that you have been listening to my conversation with Adam Dombey, who is an associate professor at Auburn University, about Confederate monuments and their history and the lost cause. And we are now going to turn to talking with Andrea Benjamin, who is an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma on her research regarding Confederate monuments and the likelihood of them being removed from public spaces. So Andrea, here in Southwestern Virginia, the town where I live, there's a Confederate monument. Actually, there's two of them that are positioned right outside our county courthouse. And we're getting ready to have this conversation um, in about a week as to the relocation of those monuments. Now you've been doing some research on the likelihood of monuments being removed, correct? And can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in that topic? Sure, so yes, thank you for having me. Um, I, along with my co-authors, Ray Block Jr., Jared Clement, Cheryl Laird, and Julian Womble started this project, oh gosh, it must've been 2017. And I kind of came onto it late. And I think the reason why they added me to the project was to think a little bit more about the local context. So we created a database from the Southern Poverty Law Center And then we added a bunch of different information, sort of, is it still standing? Uh, When was it erected? You know, when did it come down, if it had come down already? And then we added census data so that we could account for the population. We went through, this was one of the hardest parts, was we went through and coded at the time the current city council um, and Black mayorship. And then we added how they voted um, in 2016. And oh, also if there were uh, NAACP chapters there. And so I think going into it, we thought surely the black population would matter or surely having a black mayor would really help predict sort of what happens to monuments. And so we were really surprised that it's actually share of the democratic vote. So how many Democrats reside in that area? And then it's the interaction between the size of the black population and whether or not there's NAACP um, that really help explain when monuments come down and actually having a black population, the population on its own actually reduces the likelihood that it will come down. And so, you know, we think that the work is really important just to try to think about it systemically. So we also account for the fact that in some states, the state legislatures had prohibited local entities from taking action. And so obviously that's a huge hurdle, but I think, you know, sort of that early sort of data collection and sort of idea generating really helped us figure out what factors would explain it coming down. And I think that that really moved us forward because I don't know, again, I think going into it, I I was really strongly, I I believe that the black mayor would be such a huge predictor to bring it down. Yeah. I was impressed by the size of your data. Um, If I'm not mistaken, it was something like 1800 monuments that you coded for, correct? That is correct. And that meant for, I mean, some places have more than one, obviously, like you said, in your town, but what that meant was, you know, for each of those locations, trying to figure out who's elected there, what's going on. Yeah. And, and I also noticed, so um, a lot of research on this sort of thing is usually case study, right? So somebody will go to a community and they'll do sort of this like in-depth 
who got activated, who did this, who did that, what ended up happening. But your study is much broader than that. We can say a lot more with your data. Yeah. And I think, you know, I love a case study. I should just to be transparent. I worked at UNC at the time and I lived in Durham at the time when we were working on this, both of which had, you know, sort of activists and protesters bring down their monuments and they didn't wait for the the local elected officials to make those decisions. Yeah. So as I was reading through your piece and I was, you know, of course I'm thinking about what's happening here in Abingdon. And so this is Washington County. There are these two monuments. I don't think, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I don't think that they would be relocated, removed and relocated if it wasn't for the fact that the courthouse itself has to be renovated. Because, okay, looking at the data that you're using, you have statistics or you have some data for the percent of the Black population in that area. Well, our percentage of non-white population is extremely small. In 2019, the percentage of Black citizens living in Washington County was only 1.3%. So right away, right, just on that alone, we don't really, you know, I guess you could say, based on that, perhaps we would be less likely to take it down. But as you mentioned, it's more than just the percentage of the Black population. There's the second layer to that, correct? Right. Yeah. So obviously, again, the the greatest predictor on its own is percent Democrat vote. So I don't know how your county voted in 2016 or even 2020. Um, Maybe you know that. Yes. So, yeah. So first, so we have a very low black population. We do not have a local chapter of the NAACP. Okay. It'd be great if we did. Um, And then for Clinton in 2016, it was 21.6%. So we're in one of the most conservative. I mean, I think that our district um, is like the 38th most conservative voting district in the United States. So it's, it's very red here. Um, and so as I was reading it, I thought, well, you know, it last year, last summer, we were discussing this with the board of supervisors and there was a lot of pushback and given your findings, that's kind of what we would expect to see as well. Yeah, in that sense, your town is such an interesting, it could be, it's maybe you'll do the case study on it, right? That despite a low percent Democrat in the county, low black population, no NAACP, that the fact that the monument is still coming down represents this really unique case of, hey, sometimes there are these loopholes, like it's not all these predictive factors that we think it should be. Um, But I also think, again, 2020 in and of itself represented this strange moment where, you know, even local elected officials that knew that there would be lawsuits, I think this happened in Alabama, they still said, take it down. And they were willing to risk it in that political climate, which, again, I don't think, barring the summer of 2020, the, the racial unrest that we would have seen that action. And so I think this is a good reminder that, you know, I love, I like our study. I think we did the best we could, but you know, there's always going to be those small individual factors. And so in communities, if there are things that you think aren't, don't, don't seem quite right. I think this is such a great moment to remind ourselves that we have the power that we need and that we can be the change in our community. Now, I still study politics. So I know that, as you mentioned, even in your community conversation, there's always going to be opposition and we don't always get our way. But what I like hearing from you and, and talking to other people is I love that people are engaged in local politics. I love that they showed up to the meeting to say yes or no, to fight for their their cause, because local politics is the only place where you can do that. We're never going to be able to sign up at Congress to say what we want to those people. But you can do it, in fact, all the time at your county commissioners, your local elected city council. 
that's the access. And I love to see people exercising that. Right. I love that too. Um, and I was thinking, as I was reading your piece, we were talking a little bit before, before doing the recording today that you were saying, uh, that perhaps there'll be other people kind of adding to your study or, you know, reinvigorating your study in some way, right. Adding an additional variable or something. I wondered if, uh, did you guys think about adding something regarding, uh, petitioning or something like specific meetings that were happening at the time? Yeah, I know we definitely talked about it. I think it was so hard to think of, right? Like to go back. I think, again, this is the value of a case study as a researcher or case studies that they can go in depth with that. But for us to think about adding, you know, going to the record, which of course it would require actual knowledge of that location to say, oh, where do they keep this information? Is there an agenda from a city council meeting from 10 years ago, right? Those types of things that would have been hard for us. But I think absolutely moving forward, that's something that people should consider is sort of, right, like we use the NAACP as a proxy for, for sort of political protest that we assume, you know, then that's an assumption. I think that maybe a reader or a listener wants to challenge us on, but to actually go through and actually have that data would be such a great addition um, because you're right. There are some places where people are super active and other places where they'll, they're never going to, that meeting is never going to take place. Yeah. I've also was thinking about the, um, you use democratic vote share in 2016 and I'll tell you as someone who again is fairly active here in local politics that not all Democrats are made the same. I had a recent conversation with someone who swears to me that they're a Democrat, but they then use the phrase that they were Southern and unreconstructed. So part of me thinks that we also should perhaps think about a way beyond even voting for Clinton or voting for Biden that would represent either being a Democrat or I guess being more liberal. Have, have y'all thought about that as well? Yeah. So that was sort of, this is uh, one of my big things is like local politics is so great, but there, there are definitely data limitations. Right. And so we picked that proxy because it was going to be the closest, because even if we said, oh, well, who'd you vote for, for mayor or for county commissioner, if though, well, county commissioners often partisan, but you know, those are not often nonpartisan races. So that information wouldn't have told us anything about what those people prefer. I will say I have now currently reviewed, I think one or two papers where what people are trying to do is use the data set, which of course we've, we've shared the data pretty, we've shared it with people and they have matched it to either two, two things. I think one is like ANES data because of course they have the location tag. I think they have their zip codes to check with racial attitudes in that location, which I think is mind blown. And I think some other group did it with CCES data, which of course is a huge data set. But again, you have that zip code, which the zip codes are in our data set. And so I'm waiting to see what happens. I mean, you know, this is insider baseball, but as an academic, sometimes you review things and some journals are better than others about uh, what you get on the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I keep looking, I'm like, did these papers get accepted? Like, what's right. the status? But I think that's another thing that again, really gets at what you're saying, which is that you can have this big picture, but there's always going to be those small location-based differences. And so even again, just knowing where communities land on things like racial attitudes, which of course is a big deal in, in the subfield, um, is a way to try to get down, drill into exactly what you're saying that, yeah, okay, y'all use partisanship, but it's really ideology or some type of issue preference that really did the the heavy lifting there. And so to be able to refine that again, I'm just like, is this paper coming out? I want to read it. (laughs) Well, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, back last summer when the petition was up, 
Um, there were some Democratic groups who gladly said, post this on the page, like we will share this. And then there were others who were like, no, 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 no. Like, we don't want to share that. Like, that's getting too much in the weeds or we don't feel comfortable taking a position on this. So, yeah, it would be great if we could figure out a way to kind of slice the Democratic pie. And also on the Republican side of things, there are Republicans who are for the removal of uh, monuments as well. So being able to maybe even slice that a little further, that would be interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this is such a interesting area for research. And also, again, just given what we've seen in the last year or so, I think it's right to think about it differently than we did, um, because, of course, our data sort of stuck in a time, you know, a particular time period. Well, thanks to both of you again for being a guest on the program today. And thank you all for listening. You've given us a lot to think about, both in terms of the history surrounding these monuments and even the monuments that are right here in our town as well as the correlations, the things that actually are perhaps related to or might affect whether monuments get removed and relocated all over the country. If you missed any piece of this broadcast today, you can listen to this program again wherever you listen to podcasts like Spotify and Amazon. See you next time.